Uh, We are this morning in Hebrews chapter 11 still, in verses 17 to 22, which has its own connections to Christmas, and we'll touch upon those. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. Here we read that by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, for which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, and he gave directions concerning his bones. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. We have gathered to you. We love you. We want to know you. and We want you uh, to speak into our lives with fresh meaning and purpose and power. And so even now, would you come near and, and speak to us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we may believe and put our faith and our trust in the God who does indeed raise the dead. For we ask and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Isaac means son of laughter. He is the son of Abraham at the heart of this first part of the story. Abraham here is being held up as a man of faith because of his willingness to obey God and and this extreme command that he's given about um, Offering up his own son. It's a difficult command. We have to say that, uh, that it's caused a lot of controversy. This story, this story about God asking a man to sacrifice his child. God came to him and asked him to do this. So how could, how could a good God ask someone to do this? People have struggled with this. There are are those inside the church who've struggled along the way, but there are also those who have used this story as a reason or as an excuse to not believe in the God of the Bible because there's a story here where where he makes this command, this ask of Abraham. How can we worship a God, they would say, who demands child sacrifice? But of course, the story actually teaches the opposite. Sometimes I wonder if they read to the end. They just pick and choose those things. The story by before it is over actually teaches the exact opposite. So as we look at the story, we need to remember that Abraham and Sarah were older. Uh, They had no children. Sarah was barren. And so they had reached their old age, past the years of child rearing, and, and they had no children. And out of the blue, God shows up and promises them a child, says, you're going to have a child. This was hard to believe. Given their stage in life, it was hard to believe. It was comical enough that that Sarah literally laughed. God hears her laughs and he calls her out on it. But they end up naming their son Laughter or something like that. To laugh. Isaac, son of Laughter. And so not only did God give them a child, but, which was a remarkable gift in itself to this couple who had grieved uh, not having a child. You can imagine now they have an only child. 
at this stage of life and how special it was for them. But in addition to that, God made a lot of promises about this child and its meaning in history and in his own life and his own family. For Abraham's family, Isaac would be the beginning of a, of a huge a heritage of a, of a huge family that, that would come from him. But he also says that through Isaac, not only were you going to have this great family and you'll be blessed and you'll have this, this huge family, but all the nations of the earth will be blessed through this child. They're going to be like the sand on the seashore. That's, we Yankees, we call it the shore. Down here, it would be like the sand on the beach. Uh, there, there, there is so many that you can't number them. This huge family that's going to come from this one son. I'm going to take him and multiply him so that your heritage is like the sand on the seashore. Genesis 18, 18 says that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And so Isaac is the hope of Abraham's whole family of even having one, anything to survive his own death, the family that would come. So he's become the hope of this family, this promised child, this gift. But he also becomes the hope of nations. He's going to bless the whole world through this kid. Through Isaac. So in verse 18, as he says, through Isaac, the one of whom it was said, through Isaac, not through any other, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So through Isaac, this miraculous one, this son of promise, he's the son of laughter, he's the unexpected gift and balm in their old age, their only child, the one through whom God is going to forge a new nation, a huge family, he's going to bless the world. And then out of the blue, God comes back and says, I want the child back. I want you to sacrifice him to me, for me. Now, this would be confusing. It's confusing to us. It would be confusing to Abraham. Did I get something wrong? (laughs) You seem very clear on that my offspring is going to be named through Isaac. He's going to bless. Like all this stuff you promised was going to come true through this kid. And now you're saying you want him to die. How can this be? How, how could God, and not only how could it be, but how could God tell Abraham to do that? How could he tell anyone to do such a thing? And the answer is this. The biblical answer is why did God tell Abraham to do this? And the answer, the biblical answer is this. To teach Abraham that he is a God who does not require this, right, was to teach him that he is not a God who requires human sacrifice or the sacrifice of children, right? Now, to you and I, this may seem obvious that the God of the Bible doesn't, you know, for we, we've had several thousand years. This story comes from, to us from about 2000 BC, right? So we've had some 4,000 years, a couple thousand years of Bible We've had, you know, this story, the church in the Old Testament and the New have had this story and the rest of the stories where God reveals himself and we get to know him. So we've got all of this history of knowing the God.
God of the Bible, and that of course he would never require such a thing, but in the beginning, right, and that's what the Genesis means, in the beginning, and these are the first pages of Genesis, in the beginning, it had to be revealed. People didn't know that. It wasn't as obvious in the brutal, difficult world in which they lived, it had to be taught, it had to be demonstrated, they had to learn who this God of the Bible, the God of creation is. This time in history, by all accounts, there is little respect uh, or value for human life. It's a very brutal age of warfare and slavery and, 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 and pagan religion and pagan sacrifice. Human sacrifice was not uncommon. Records show that the Canaanites sacrificed children to Baal and to Molech. So this kind of thing, which seems so obviously evil to us, so far away from our culture, so far away from our experience in some ancient past, which in some ways is where it is, it wasn't so obvious to them, and frankly, it's becoming less obvious to our culture. I just, as I was doing this, I just had to make mention of this and, and reference you if you want to look it up. I read the Christian Post. Uh, it sends me articles on, on stuff. And I pick and choose, but there was an article in there this week that said this. This is a quote from Christian Post. Cosmopolitan, that's a magazine, Cosmo, been around for a long time. Cosmo, Cosmopolitan, which boasts print and digital audience of over 50 million readers, published a piece in its November and December issue about the Satanic Temple and its new Mexico-based telehealth abortion clinic that provides, quote, from the article in Cosmo that provides, quote, abortion medication via the mail to those in New Mexico who wish to perform the Satanic Temple's religious abortion ritual. Goes on to talk about the fact that this is, they see it as a sacrifice to personal autonomy, which is, which is the God of this age. And you think it doesn't happen or that it's that far away. It's not that far away. We need to see this incident, though, not as God wanting human sacrifice, but actually teaching us the opposite. We know because he does not let it happen. And he never had any intention of letting it happen. He's going to provide. But he pulls Abraham out. He does test his faith in the midst of a community uh, uh, where this kind of thing takes place to pull him out and to test his faith and to teach him, I would not require this of you. In fact, I'm going to provide for you. Now, granted, Abraham doesn't know this yet, right? Uh, he is obeying God, but and you got to remember, Abraham was a pagan, right? He's a first-generation believer. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, and they were moon worshipers and other kind of pagan. Like, Abraham was a pagan. He's a little rough around the edges in terms of his belief in this God who called him out, and we, we honor him as a man of faith because he went where he knew, didn't know where he was going. God said, go over here, and, and he's introduced to this, this God. He's getting to know this God, but he doesn't know him very well. There's nothing. We have no Bible. We have no prophets. We got no Jesus. We got no time in history. He's a first-generation guy called out of paganism, and God is teaching him who he is. And in doing so, he teaches, he's taught the church for thousands of years who he is. Abraham was on a learning curve about this one true and living God. 
And so he's teaching Abraham he is not like the pagan gods all around him. He does not require this kind of sacrifice. Listen to Genesis 22, 14, 12 to 14. It says, do not lay your hand on the boy. Right? And that, that's where the story goes. Don't touch him. Don't do anything to that child. Why? Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, there were behind him there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horn and Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering and, in, and in, instead of his son and so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide my friends that is the moral of the story the Lord will provide right he will not require the sacrifice of you right he will not demand that kind of thing the Lord himself will provide that is the that's what he's teaching That's what he's taught through all of history, and ultimately he does, does he not? The moral of the story is the gospel. It's the good news that God himself will provide the sacrifice. He will be the one to offer his only son, that God himself will bear the burden required in the sacrifice to set us free. The whole episode foreshadows the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the son of promise, the miraculous son, you know, born to a virgin. But the only son of the father given for us, the Lord will provide. That's the moral of the story. That is the gospel. Jesus Christ, son of God, lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So he's teaching us he does not require sacrifice from us, but rather to put our faith and our trust in the sacrifice that God himself is going to provide. So the testing of Abraham's faith here, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. He's like, all right, I don't really know you that well. This is what goes on around here, right? And he offers him up and and God comes, even though he says that through your son shall your offspring be named. It was a step of faith, an act of faith. But this testing of his faith reveals the character of God. It's an opportunity for God to reiterate his promises, Not to require anything of Abraham, but to reiterate his promises. Genesis 22, after this episode, it says, Because you have done this, you've not withheld your son, your only son. In your offspring, in this son, shall all... and, And the offspring there, Paul makes a big deal of it in the book of Galatians. The word offspring there is singular. Right? And Paul pulls this out, saying, in your offspring, meaning one who is Jesus Christ. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God was saying, Christmas is coming. Right? Christmas is coming. In your offspring shall all the world be blessed. One of your ancestors. One of your ancestors will be the savior of the world. Christmas is coming. And so the passage goes on to follow God's promise. Right? That's where these next couple of verses, it's a little odd that they follow out of it as you pick up on his children. But it, the passage is following God's promise as it's passed from father and son down through the generations. We have here the patriarchs, like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, the one, the child of laughter who doesn't get sacrificed, 
because God's not like that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Israel and of the faith of Abraham. And we see the blessing pronounced. So in verse 20, he says, you know, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings, right? The, the promises of God over Jacob and Esau. But we see in the next verse uh, that it's not through Esau, but through Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he's dying, blessed the sons, the, palm, the promise, the, the blessings is being passed from father to son. What blessings are these that, that we belong to God the Father who said he's going to make of us a mighty nation. And then through us, through our progeny, there will be one who will bless the nations of the world. The promise is passed on. And they, he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in all of Israel. So we see even Joseph has in the end verse there that it's a little enigmatic, uh, this, this idea that by faith Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Right, what were those directions? Doesn't really explain it. Well, he, he told them, take my bones back to Canaan and bury them there. Because the promise was he was going to make a great nation of them, and that great nation was going to be located geopolitically and physically in the promised land. And this is where, at the end of his life, Joseph knows they're going home. It's, it's 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 an act of faith, a promise saying one day, God is going to fulfill his promise. We'll be delivered from here, and we will go home. All these died in faith, the Scripture tells us. Believing the promises of God, but not seeing their fulfillment, but looking ahead and believing and seeing, passing the promise on to generation after generation in hope and faith. The promise here is an early form of the gospel. The gospel is being passed through generation from from the faithful to the faithful. There is a a seed, a, a, a line of faithfulness. It runs from Abraham down to Jesus. And it, and it passes, you know, Jacob and Esau, but not Esau, but through Jacob. Isaac, and then on it goes through. But it's the gospel that's being passed down, that salvation will come to the nations. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 8. It says that the scripture, foreseeing that God is going to justify the Gentiles by faith, that's the gospel that is going to save the nations. A savior will come to the nations. It says he preached the gospel before Abraham to Abraham. And here's the proto-form of the gospel. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There was another proto-form of it given to Adam and Eve. Right, that, that there's a son of the woman will crush the serpent's head. There'll be a, a one who will crush the serpent's head. There is one who is a child of Abraham who will bless the nations. It's the proto-gospel that Christmas is coming, that God will send not only a son of Abraham, but a son of God. This, pre- this promise is treasured and it's passed on and it runs through the generations and through families and individuals all the way to Jesus. And we see this. Isn't it interesting if you've ever noticed when you go to read the only two Gospels that really give us the historical narrative of the birth of Jesus are Matthew and Luke. I don't know if you know that both of them have a genealogy in them. And, and Matthew starts with a genealogy. So when he goes to tell the story of Jesus, the first thing he does is he tells the genealogy. And he gives the generations, there were 12 generations, and he lists them from Abraham to here, from here to here, and from here to Jesus. He traces it from Abraham to Jesus. And then he says the story of the birth of Jesus came about like this. Right? So the, the, to tell the story of Jesus, to understand Jesus historically in the context of what God is doing, 
you got to understand the line from Abraham to the offspring through whom he will bless the world. And let me tell you about how Jesus is born. And we see that this is the understanding of the gospel writers and of the New Testament folks and of all those who are bumping into them. Uh, we follow this as a genealogy of the promise down to his fulfillment in Christ. In Luke chapter 1, and you get this both, I chose this one, this is Zechariah. You get it also in the Magnificat. So when Mary sings about her son, or when Zechariah sings about the fulfillment, and John is a forerunner of the Lord and what the Lord is doing, uh, both of them go here. Both of them say, this is what God is doing. In Zechariah's song, he says this in Luke chapter 1, that all of this is happening to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant that he made with Abraham, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Right? He is saying all of this is a fulfillment of a covenant of grace and of promise when God gave the gospel to Abraham and said a son will come and he will be a savior to the nation. This is the origin of the Christmas story. Jesus' birth is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of all of it, starting back in the first pages with Abraham. The promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham, through whom salvation comes to the nations. So we see the text. Let's just back up here and say this is the God who raises the dead, which for me is at the heart of this text. You know, because you can't read that in the middle of this text and not think about Jesus, right? He's a God who raises the dead. He believed that he could raise Isaac from the dead. So belief in resurrection goes all the way back to Isaac. And it's the kind of faith that, I mean, to Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, and it's the kind of faith that has shaped God's people from then. There was some debate at the time of Jesus, or I think Pharisees believed in the resurrection and Sadducees didn't, or, and so there was some contention. But they're carried on this belief that God raises the dead. He's the God of the living and not the dead. And so this faith, Abraham is commended, is being commended here for his faith. At the center of his faith is the belief that God is going to fulfill his promise and that it will be through Isaac that his offspring is going to be reckoned. And this is his only son whom God is asking him to sacrifice. But faith, we're told in Verse 1 of this chapter is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, right? And when it says the assurance of things hoped for, what are the things we're hoped for? Well, they're the promises of God, right? We're, those are the, that's the things that, that, that God's people are hoping for, right? not some random things they made up in terms of their, right? It's, it, it's the assurance of the things that God has promised. Right? Even though we haven't seen them, even though we die and haven't seen their fulfillment, each generation died without having seen the fulfillment of the one who would come. Right? The Old Testament ends in great messianic expectation. They're still waiting for that one, but faith was believing that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. And faith is the assurance of things that we hope for in the promises of God, the conviction that though we have not seen the fulfillment, we worship and follow and trust, and we even die in that hope. 
of the God who made these promises. Faith is believing and living as if all these things that we hope for, these things that have been promised to us, even though they're not seen yet, are true. Right? It's living like those things are true. It's the assurance of things promised and hoped for. Right? It's the conviction that though we don't see them, we live like they're true. That's why we're here and we're in worship this morning and not somewhere else. It's why we tithe and why we give and invest in the kingdom of God. It's why we go and it's why we serve and it's why we teach and it's why we disciple and it's why we do everything we do. We live as if the promises are true. We live as if the one who came the first time at Christmas is coming again. And the promise that God will fulfill all that he has promised. And so faith is conforming our lives to God's word, believing that it is true. God will fulfill all of his promises. He believed in the power to raise the dead. And so we get this right in the middle. I skipped it and I come back to it now as an application in many ways. But we talked about it, that, that he, he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. Right? This is what the New Testament writers are telling us what must have been or was absolutely by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the mind of Abraham when he goes to offer his son because God had made promises that were based on Isaac living. And so as he goes to offer the son and to see him die, he believes God must have a plan to raise him from the dead. Because he's going to have children and be the father of a mighty nation. He believed the promises that through Isaac, your offspring will be named. <clears throat> and so if Abraham obeyed this, if he sacrificed Isaac, the only way God could fulfill his promise was to raise him back from the dead. That's the only way he could fulfill his promise. Because he had said, through Isaac. Which goes to show you, my friends, that he never intends to kill Isaac. And yes, yes, he could be raising from the dead, but I think his promise is saying that through Isaac shall your offspring be reckoned shows that he has no intention. Ever had an intention of harming this child. But he believes in the resurrection because he does not understand all that is going on. He's on a learning curve and he's learning about this God and, and, and he surrenders everything to him. He believes that God is able to raise the dead. He's, he believes God can fix this situation, that he could fulfill, however he's going to fill. At the core is the absolute conviction of the things promised and that God can do it, but so he's willing to sacrifice everything. We see that, that Isaac is everything to him. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. But, but also for, for Abraham, the uniqueness of all this, the son of their old age, their only child, they never thought they would have. All the promises of a family and a heritage and all that God would do that, that this son at an age old enough to walk with him and talk with him on his way, you know, that filled their lives with joy and laughter, you know, this, this, this unexpected blessing to have a child at this point in their lives that, that filled their lives with hope and promises. Abraham believed in God's faithfulness and his power and so he was willing to give everything to him, even the son he gave him, to give him back. Because he is the Lord. And there are some ways he's never going to ask in this way. But he does ask for everything. And that's part of the test and the learning that is in Abraham's life that is meant to come down to us, that believing in the resurrection 
And this God who has called him, he surrenders everything. Everything. Lays his heart literally on the altar. This is yours. And by God's grace, he learns he doesn't want to take his son. He will provide the sacrifice he will give. He's a giver and not a taker. But the call of the gospel is to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Right? To give him in that sense everything. That's what that verse is telling us, to deny ourselves and take up the cross, die to ourselves and our own, and to abandon ourselves to the God who is good and who doesn't take but who gives his only son Right? That, that, that which he would never ask of us is that which he gives for us to surrender ourselves to him. My friend, the offspring of Abraham has come. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The birth of the one through whom God promised to bless the world. Jesus born of Mary, the one who grows and goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we may have an eternal life, the, the hope of the nations. God raised him from the dead. He is a God who raises the dead. He could have raised Isaac. He gave him back, he says, metaphorically or symbolically raising him from the dead. But he literally raises Christ from the dead and it's the hope and the promise to the church that one day all those who are in Christ will hear his voice and rise. He rose from the dead and conquered sin, death, and the devil and opened the way. My friends, we believe in a God who has the power to raise the dead. What I think the scripture wants for us to understand, at least partly from that, is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can do that, what can he not do? And Jesus says it on several occasions. With man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We worship a God who is able to raise the dead. When Abraham was called to this costly obedience that he didn't understand, it was confusing to him, was, was painful to him. When he is called to this costly obedience, he put his faith and trust in the God whom he knew, if it came to it, could raise the dead. Sometimes, you and I get to the place where it feels like there is no hope. So we have to ask, what are we facing today? What loss have you suffered? You know, job loss, and you can make the list of other kind of loss and personal loss. Is your marriage in crisis? And you can make the list of things that we're facing. And it's easy to get to the place and to the time where we feel like there's no hope. I've sat with people who have said, it's over. There's no hope. One of the first things I try to do is restore faith. With God, all things are possible. Do you not know that he literally raises the dead? Right? Do you not know this is a God who can do all things? Right? And, and in whatever situation it is, is to have our faith restored in the God who raises the dead, and he wants us to do this. Like, if you remember, I'm going to end with these two verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, it says this. Paul has gone through a hard time, and Paul says this. We don't want you, church, to be unaware of the affliction that we've experienced. Man, it has been rough. 
right? For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. <clears throat> How many of you feel that way today or have ever felt that way, right? Burdened beyond your strength where God brings you to the end of yourself. And you say, that's it, it's over, there's no hope. We were at this place, we were so utterly burdened and beyond our, this, our own strength that we despaired of life itself. I'm a, I'm a goner. It's a goner, it's, there's no hope for it. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. And sometimes he brings us to the end of ourselves because we're so full of ourselves. And it's not till we get a little less full of ourselves that we will not rely on ourselves. If you're looking at it, if it's up to me, it is over. (laughs) If it's up to me changing my heart, if it's up to me making myself feel certain things, if it's up to me to produce certain things, if it's up to me, if it, all, if it depends on me, it's over. It's a sentence of death. There is no hope. But he actually brings us to that place so that we will abandon ourselves as the center of our hope and rely on the one who raises the dead, who can save the unsavable, If you met me when I was 17, you would have thought, one of the unsavable. My wife, every now and then, if I throw her on it, will say, you know, every now and then when I just want to ruin my faith, I think we we dated as (laughs) non-Christians. I think of you before you were saved and after you were saved, and I believe in the power of God to raise the dead, right? This is the God we worship. If we rely on the God who raises the dead, is there anything he's not able to do, anything he's not able to fix, anything he's not able to change? And the answer is there's not. And if he doesn't, then it's because just like in the life of Abraham, there's so many things he's teaching us and doing in our lives that all things are working together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but he is able. In Luke chapter 8, when the storm hits the disciples in the boat and they think they're sinking and they wake up Jesus and he gets up. In Luke chapter 8, 24 and 25, Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. Right here is the power of God. Right? He not only raises the dead, but he commands nature and it obeys. He is Lord of creation. And when they ceased and there was a calm, he said to them, where is your faith? That's the question for us this morning. It's a question I leave you with. Where's your faith? Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you are God who speaks to us and continues to reveal yourself to us. You are God who gives and doesn't take. You are the, the Lord and giver of life and you are the one who raises the dead and calms the storms that you can do all things. Oh God, open our hearts and our minds that we may stop relying on ourselves, looking to what we are capable of, that we may rely on you. We would put our hope in you, our trust in you. For we ask and we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.